All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, Josh wanted me to mention that if if you were, I don't see anybody here that would want to go to the. Everybody here looks like they know pretty much about everything about the church, right? So, okay. Yeah, but the other class is meeting in the, the closet hallway, whatever we call it over there. So, anyway. Um, and I also think everybody here knows me. Last week I was informed that I made it a point to tell you all that I wasn't Toby, but that I didn't actually say my name. I, I thought that I did, but I, I'm Matt. Everybody, I think everybody here knows me, though, so... All right, so this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, we just give you praise for another day that we can come and worship you. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we can be in your word, that we can study. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our, our study of it each and every day. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, just uh, this this time that we have, we just pray, Lord, that you would bless us and, and pray, Lord, that this would be a time that would glorify and honor you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we will be starting to look at the book of Daniel, and we'll be spending our time together uh, in the first section of chapter 1. Last week we went over an introduction to the book, looking at some of the themes, looking at some of the facts of the book, some of the historical details surrounding the events of the book of Daniel. As we get into these initial verses, uh, we'll see a little more history and background, um, as well as get introduced to some of the important characters uh, that we find here. And these introductions will help set the stage for events that will take place later on throughout uh, the rest of the book. Chapter 1 really serves as an introduction or a summary, you might say, of the life of Daniel. It's in this chapter that that we meet him. We're told about how he prospers, how he remains faithful, and we see that he remains influential for a long time. So when we're done with chapter 1, in the following chapters, we'll actually go back and deal with some of the other details of his life. But for now, for our study this morning, we're going to look at the first seven verses of the chapter, and we'll actually dip into verse 8 briefly, um, and we'll see what details God has for us in this section here. So let's start off by looking at the first two verses in Daniel, in chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, we briefly mentioned in our last study, in our introduction, uh, but we didn't go into much detail, um, that the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and we talked a little bit about Habakkuk as well, prophesied that this was going to occur. The king of Babylon comes to the southern kingdom of Judah and is victorious against her. He overthrows her king and he takes the vessels of the house of God with him. Now it may surprise you to learn, I don't know how much of us are are history buffs here, but it may surprise you to learn that this is not the captivity of Judah, or at least it's not the complete captivity of Judah. Babylon coming to take Judah captive actually occurs in three different phases. 
at three different times spanning a period of about 20 years. This part of the captivity here is the first of the three, and it took place around 605 B.C., when Jehoiakim is on the throne in Judah. It's a complicated tale, but the short of it is that Judah and Egypt had an alliance at this point in time, mostly because the king of Egypt had placed Jehoiakim on the throne in Judah, and Jehoiakim was basically his stooge, you could say, um, in, in Judah. Babylon and Egypt were the two superpowers of the area, and they didn't get along very well, and they were constantly fighting for power. And Judah was stuck right in the middle of the two. And I don't, I don't have a map. I'm not good with the... I work in IT, but I'm not good with technical details and things like that. So, um, But I don't have a map, but anybody that's seen a map of the area, you know that Judah is right in the middle between where Egypt is in the south, and of course I'm backwards, but from your perspective, but Egypt down here and Babylon would be over here and Judah would be there in the middle. Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon and he fought against Egypt and he drove the Egyptians out of Palestine uh, back into Egypt. And then when he's finished with that, he comes back and he deals with Judah on his way back to Babylon. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem to deal with them. But at this time, he receives word from home that his father, Nabopolassar, is dying. And so he feels compelled to return home. Now, at first we might think, oh, how sweet. Nebuchadnezzar hears that his father's dying, and so he feels compelled to return home. But, but more likely, it wasn't because of he wanted to see his dad at the very end, but more likely he wanted to return home so that no one else would take his throne while his father was dying. But he doesn't return home empty-handed. One of the things that he does is he takes with him the golden vessels of uh, the temple. And that's what we see here in Daniel chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar leaves Jehoiakim in power, but he's going to assert his authority over him. So Jehoiakim was the stooge of Egypt, if you will, and now he's going to be the stooge of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's going to assert his authority over him, a part of which involves taking of the vessels of the temple. And the other aspect of this is going to involve taking captives, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we get into the next verses. But at this point in time, if you were a king and you wanted to show your superiority over your enemy, if you had just defeated someone and you wanted to show your superiority over them, you would prove that your God was greater than their God. And what better way to do that than to take the golden vessels from your God's temple and put them in your own God's temple and start start to use them in your own worship of your own God. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He attempts to assert his control of the nation of Judah by subjugating them and humiliating God is really what he's trying to do. And so that's what we have here. Now, I mentioned that this wasn't all there was to the captivity of Judah. There was more to come. This was just that first phase. In 597 BC, eight years later, we have phase two of the captivity. And this takes place after Jehoiakim dies and his son, Jehoiachin, has been in power for a total of three months. Now, to see this, turn over to 2 Kings with me, and we'll take a look at some of this history. We'll go through these other two phases a little bit here. But in 2 Kings chapter 24, we'll briefly see the first phase. And the first phase is actually very brief here in 2 Kings 24. 
2 Kings 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Now, that's it. There's not a lot of detail here. But when it says that Nebuchadnezzar came up, this is what we saw back in Daniel chapter 1, when he took the vessels back with him. And it, and it worked for a while, but then eventually Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon. It says there he turned and rebelled against him. In verse 6, if you skip down a little bit, we have Jehoiakim's death and Jehoiachin becomes king. And then we have the second phase down in verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said." Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So what we have here in this section is that second phase where the king Jehoiachin is taken and he will spend the rest of his life in exile. At this time, he takes more people. He takes all of the people that are worth something. You know, I put that in quotes, right? Worth something. But he takes the people that, that would be important. He takes captains, craftsmen, smiths, 10,000 people in all. And the only people he leaves in the land are the poorest people, basically the people that don't have anything for, to offer him. Then Nebuchadnezzar sets up another king, Zedekiah, and leaves him in charge of Judah. Now, turn a chapter over to chapter 25 of Second Kings, and finally... In about 586 B.C., we have the third phase, starting in verse 1. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Now in 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes up and starts a siege, and this siege lasts two and a half years until the food supply in Jerusalem runs, runs out and the army of Jerusalem runs off and Jerusalem is defeated. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar takes the rest of the people with only a few left behind to work the land. And so by 586 BC, Judah has been completely taken captive and they will remain in captivity for a total of 70 years. From the time of the first phase of the captivity until the time that they were able to return to the land, 70 years will elapse. And that 70-year time frame was significant because it was a time period that was prophesied beforehand. It was prophesied for a reason and it had to do with the people's disobedience against God. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 25. I should have warned you beforehand, we're going to turn to a few different passages here. Remember, Jeremiah was the prophet that was prophesying right up 
until the end, right up until the Chaldeans or the Babylonians come and the captivities start. If you look at verse 1 of Jeremiah 25, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And here we have Jeremiah speaking in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. And look, look down at verse 4, and this is what he has to say to them. And it says, And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and do not provoke me with, to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. And we talked about this last time. They, the people of Israel had every opportunity to turn from their sin and obey the Lord. They had the prophets warning them again and again, over and over again, telling them to turn from evil, telling them not to worship other gods. And if they did this, he told them right there at the end of that section, I will do you no harm if they obeyed the Lord. But instead, we have what, ha- what comes in verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against his, this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. And you see here the consequences. The, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, will come against this land. And it's interesting that the Lord calls him my servant. And we'll get into why that is when we get into chapter 2 and chapter 4 and things like that. But... But basically it comes down to, which we talked about last time, was that God is the one who's sovereignly in control. And God is the one that puts nations in charge and people in charge of nations. But he says that Nebuchadnezzar will come against the land, and not only will he come against Judah, but he will be a force that will affect all of the surrounding nations as well. And the nations will become a horror, it says, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. This sounds like a pretty complete judgment that he's talking about here. Down in verse 11, it says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for how long? Seventy years. That's the time frame. They shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, why 70 years? Why, why do we care? The number 70 is significant because of the number of Sabbath years that Israel had not dedicated to God as they were supposed to do under the law. Israel had been commanded by God to allow the land to have a Sabbath rest every seventh year, to let the land sit, to not grow anything on the land every seventh year. Well, from the time of Saul, they had failed to do that. From Saul to the time of the captivity in Judah, 490 years had elapsed. And if you take every seventh year out of 490, what do you have? And I know not everybody likes math, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. It's 70, right? 
You don't have to turn there, but, but we see this spelled out in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 20. If you want to turn there, go ahead. But in 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 20, it says, And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So those 70 years were God returning the Sabbaths that Israel had failed to recognize, thus the 70 years of captivity. And so that's why Judah was in captivity for that period of time. So what we have in the first verses of Daniel, you can go ahead and turn back to Daniel, is the beginning of the captivity of Judah. The city besieged, the vessels taken back to Babylon, or Shinar as it's called here in verse 2. And don't let the names fool you, you know, they have many different names from many different places, right? But Shinar is synonymous with Babylon, it's just an older name. In fact, we've already seen the name Shinar in our study in Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, as the people journeyed east, they settled in the land of Shinar, it says. And what did they build in the land of Shinar? Tower of Babel is built in the land of Shinar. And that's the place where false worship basically began. And in the book of Revelation, we see there that it will be the focal point of false worship in the future as well. And you know what we have here in Dan- Daniel is really an ultimate dichotomy. Because what we have is we have the people of God taken from God's city, from Jerusalem, from God's land, taken from the very center of where the worship of God is supposed to take place. And they are removed from there, and they are taken to the place that is the exact opposite. They are taken to the place that's the center for pagan godless worship, from the beginning of human history all the way to the end of human history, is what Babylon really is. And how far the nation has fallen at this time, how complete is their humiliation, all because they did not listen to God. However, even though they are being punished for their sins as a nation, that doesn't mean that none of them remained faithful to God, or that none of them refused uh, to compromise with the world. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, because in just a few verses, we're going to meet Daniel. And Daniel was a man who lived a separated life and did not compromise with the world. And we're going to, uh, and we're going to see him, we'll get to him when we get down to verse 6. But first, we get to verses 3 to 5, chapter 1. We see the circumstances surrounding the way in which Daniel ended up in Babylon. And as we take a look at how hostages are taken back to Babylon during the first phase of captivity. Um, We see this here starting in verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. So what do we see here? Nebuchadnezzar takes hostages. Okay, We mentioned this earlier, right? He took some of the items, the vessels, and now we see he's taking hostages. So he leaves King Jehoiakim on the throne in Jerusalem. Evidently, he felt that Jehoiakim was such a weak-minded man that he posed no threat to him while he was still on the throne, which really speaks volumes about Jehoiakim's character. 
but he does take hostages with him. He takes some of the sons of Israel. Now, by saying that they were from Israel doesn't indicate that they were from the northern kingdom, but simply that they were Jews. They were descendants of Jacob. Yeah. They weren't friends. They were at odds with each other at this time. Where they come and start warring with Babylon? Um, that I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know for sure. Well, it might be. Or Babylon may have been so dominant over them that they didn't have an ability to come back at them. I don't know that for sure, though. Jay, I can look into that though. Right. Right. Well, especially I was kind of I was thinking that if if they took all the people that were worth anything back to Babylon anyway, maybe Egypt thought there wasn't much to wasn't much point, but that was after several phases. So, but I don't know that for sure. I can I can check into that though. So Jehoiakim was still on the throne. Um, but he does take hostages. Nebuchadnezzar does take hostages with him. He takes some of the sons of Israel. Now, by saying, again, by saying they were from Israel doesn't indicate that they were from the northern, they were from the southern. Uh, that just indicates that they were Jews. But in addition, they were not only Jews, but they were uh, of the royal family. They were of nobility. So this is the first group that he's taking here. And if you think about it, those are, those are the hostages to take, right? The, the children of the royal family. Um, you take the sons of the influential, the powerful, the well-to-do. They would be the ones whose lives were worth more, right? Whose parents would be put out if something happened to them. And you get the idea. You don't, you don't take the sons of commoners or the sons of field workers or servants, but of the nobility, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Those, those are the people that he targets here. So he took valuable prisoners with him. And therefore, he ensured himself against an uprising from Judah by doing this. So it says that Nebuchadnezzar orders Ashpenaz to gather up uh, this group of young men. And the name Ashpenaz, uh, there's some debate whether or not this is an actual name or if it just means um, that he was the chief uh, of the officials because it could actually be a title. And it probably doesn't really matter if it's a name or a title um, so as long as we realize that this is a real person, this is an actual person. Um, and we'll get to see him again when we get down to verse 8, when he plays a fairly significant role there. But Ashpenaz was the man in charge of the king's officials. And the word for officials is literally the word that means eunuchs. Now, it was fairly common in this day for the king's servants to be eunuchs. Um, they would have gone through an actual surgical procedure to be eunuchs, um, and they would be wholly devoted to the service of the king, right? I guess they felt that that would free them from distractions. Some point out that the word also came to be synonymous with just being a king's servant as well. In fact, in the book of Genesis, during the time of Joseph, the word was used for Potiphar, who was a servant of the king. So it's the same word used for Potiphar. And if you're familiar with that story, I think probably most of us are, you know that Potiphar had a wife, which was the whole point of 
right, that account that Joseph and Potiphar's wife got into some trouble there. Um, not on Joseph's part, I'm not, not saying that. Um, but by and large, a eunuch would not have a wife. Um, so the question always comes up when this word is used, is were Daniel and his friends made physical, literal eunuchs? And the only answer that we can give is maybe. We don't really know. We can debate it, we can assume it, but from the context, we just don't really know for sure. I mean, it could explain why we never read about Daniel's wife. We never read about him having any children. That subject never comes up, but in all actuality, we just don't know if that was the case or not. So why is this significant? Well, the significance is that we need to realize just what was going on with these young men, with these captives that were taken. What's happening here is that they are being taken into the king's service. And as a part of this service, we will see that they will go through an indoctrination program of which this physical alteration could well have been a very significant part of it. They are going to have their entire lives rearranged in order to fulfill their new role. And the attempt will be made to erase their old lives from them. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, was, he was no dummy. He wasn't an idiot. He, he was always, it was always his intention to subjugate the entire nation of Judah. And he probably would have done it during the first phase um, if he didn't have to go back when his father was dying, if he wasn't distracted and he had to go back. So instead he does this, um, this smaller... Uh, or um, Yeah, he... he, he, he he takes fewer captives. He takes uh, fewer things at the first, uh, the first phase. So instead, he takes these captives and he enters them into this program with the idea that he will have some Jews then who would be loyal to him so that when he returned later on to bring back the rest of the nation, their transition would be easier to swallow. And they could help that along. These captives could actually help that along. The children could help indoctrinate their own parents, right? Because if you think about it, your, your child has been taken, and he's in the service of the king of Babylon, and then when you see him again, if he's been properly indoctrinated or brainwashed, then he might actually have influence over his parents to say, hey, Babylon's not so bad. This king's not such a bad guy. Nebuchadnezzar's intention was to have some of God's people in place to serve himself, but what he didn't realize was that God wanted some of these people in in that same position to serve God for God's own purposes. So Nebuchadnezzar orders Ashpenaz to take these captives. Now in verse 4, we see the criteria that he had for choosing these captives, as well as the program that they were entering into, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Ashpenaz was to take, in verse 4, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So several things here that are on this list of, of what these youths have to be um, have to have true of them, right? The first thing is that he, they call them youths, right? He wants young men, young people captured uh, as part of this program. He wanted kids. Those who would be malleable and moldable and easily influenced. Plus, they would be good for service for a long time, right? He didn't, he didn't find old wise men 
men who would be set in their ways already or who wouldn't have a lot of service time left. No, he wanted young men to be a part of this program. How young were they? Well, most commentators put these guys somewhere between the ages of 13 and 18. And think about that for a minute. 13 to 18 years old. I tend to, just because of the range there, I tend to fixate on 15, just an average between the ages. I tend to think of them as somewhere around 15 years old, putting them right in the middle of that range. But keep in mind, as we study through the coming events in this chapter, we're going to see Daniel and his friends defined here in chapter 1. And keep in mind that these guys are 15 years old, somewhere around 15 years old, give or take it a couple of years. And we'll understand that the response that they have in the situation that they're in is truly remarkable at that young age. So they were to be young. They were to have no defect is another thing it says. They were to have no physical blemish, no handicaps. They were to be physically flawless, healthy young men. Additionally, they were to be good looking, it says. No defect had to do with the body, and this has to do with their face or their appearance. They were to be handsome young men. And there was a focus there on their physical appearance. And why would that be? Because you couldn't have any funny-looking people serving the king, right? I mean, that's kind of the mentality that they had. That was an important aspect. If you think about it, it makes sense. If you look at how even Israel chose their first king, right, when they went after Saul. They went after Saul because he was a, he was a very handsome, good-looking strong-looking guy. They went after the most handsome guy that they could find, and we know how well that turned out for them. But these guys were, were being set up to be icons, to be leaders among their people, so their physical appearance was an important aspect of that. But it wasn't just physical qualities that they were looking for. The next three qualities all had to do with their mental capabilities. It says that they were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They were endowed with understanding, and they were discerning knowledge. These all have to do with their wisdom, with their learning, with their ability to make decisions. They were to be smart guys. They were to have a knack for quick thinking, making sound decisions. They were to be educated in a variety of ways and having shown an aptitude for applying that education that they had. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want foolish young boys, he wanted the cream of the crop from Judah. And finally, they had to have social graces as well. The last thing it says is ability for serving in the king's court. And these young men um, had to have some culture. Remember, they were from the royal family. They were from the noble families of Judah. So these would be young men, youths, who had already been exposed to this type of living, this type of situation. And they would understand what was required uh, in good social circles in the presence of nobles and kings. You know, it's interesting how after more than 2,600 years since this time, things haven't really changed in the world. What the, what the world saw as an important then, the world still sees as important today. These are still qualities that the world covets. You know, you ask questions about what about their morality? What about their spiritual understanding? What about godly character? What about an uncompromising life? Well, that's not what Nebuchadnezzar was interested in, and that's not really what the world is interested in either. You know, you think about it, how do, how do we judge other people? What is the first thing that we see in others that, that impresses us? 
For most people, it's, it's these same types of things. We might throw in money and possessions to the list as well, and I would hazard to guess that for many Christians, we may get caught up in that type of thinking in our own lives as well. Maybe not intentionally, but sometimes that plays a part in our, in our thinking. But those aren't the types of things that impress God, nor um, whether, whether or not we make good social impressions, whether or not we've got a plethora of degrees associated with our names, whether or not we've won a beauty contest at some point in our lives. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. It's not the outward things in the world or that the world sees that really matter to the Lord. It's what goes on in the heart. The person who accepts Christ as their Savior is wiser than any college professor. The person who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is infinitely more wealthy than the richest athlete or the prettiest actress in Hollywood. But it's those superficial things that the world looks for. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar sought after as well. He was looking for the superficial. And so that's what he got. He's, these are the kind of views that, that they took with them. But at the end of verse 4, they begin the programming, right? So we've seen the character of the ones that he's trying to take, and then at the end of verse 4, they begin the programming. And it says, And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And he wanted young men who had already exhibited wisdom in their own learning and now be exposed to the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. We are going to turn them into Chaldeans. Chaldeans was a term synonymous with Babylonians. They often spoke of the culture of Babylon being Chaldean. So you see what they're doing here. This is a form of brainwashing. This is, this is a form of reprogramming. They were going to turn these fine Jewish specimens into fine Babylonian or Chaldean specimens. And not only were they going to do this by simply teaching them, no, they were going to immerse them into an entirely new pattern of life. This wasn't just, okay, send them to school. They were going to immerse their entire lives in this culture. Look at verse 5. It says, And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And we see here, this wasn't just, like I said, going to school every day. This was a three-year program. This was, this was a program with a specific goal in mind that went all the way down to dictating the food and the drinks that they were to consume every day. They were provided with choice food from the king's own ration and from the king's choice of wine. This would have been the best stuff in the land. This would have been, instead of eating Hot Pockets every day, they would have had all their meals provided by Omaha Steaks or Misty's. Or... Is Misty's still a big deal around here? Well, I don't know about here, but it's, it's in Lincoln, right? But that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about instead of you know, getting your, your pizza rolls, your, we're not going to feed them that. We're not going to feed them bloating sandwiches. We're going to give them steak and potatoes every day. 
this would have been the best stuff for them. In essence, they were going to live like kings. And so what was the purpose of that? Why, why give captives this kind of food, this kind of experience? It was to provide these kids with a sense of obligation, a sense of belonging. In part, it was all part of the brainwashing program. I mean, you look at these situations. Here are these kids taken from their homes, taken to a strange land by force. Okay, you no longer live in, in, in Judah. You no longer live in Jerusalem. We're taking you miles away from your home. You may not ever see your families again. But are they treated like slaves? Are they treated like captives? No, they're treated like princes. They're given a good education. They're given good food. They're given good wine. And what do you suppose that they would think about this? These Chaldeans, they're not, they're not so bad. What's wrong with this? Why, why would I want to go back to what I had before? Why would I want to live like the rest of my own people lived? I'm living like a prince here. You hear from time to time about kids that, that get abducted, abducted. They get taken from their homes. And what do their captors do? Sometimes they try to get them to like them. They try to get them to feel comfortable. They, they let them play video games. They let them eat foods that they like. They make them feel like they're important to them. And sometimes they make them feel like they're better off than they were when they were living at home. And that's really what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want frightened captives that are bent on escape or on rebellion. He wants willing accomplices. He wants brainwashed kids that will grow up into his personal service. And we don't know for sure how many captives were taken at this time. Some estimate that there may have been as many as 70 of these young men that were involved in this program. We don't know who they all were, but we do know of four of them. And for these four, the brainwashing doesn't work. And we meet them in verse 6. It says, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And here are four youths from among the many who will prove to be faithful to God. They will stand out from all the rest. And in verse 7, we see another step in the brainwashing process. It says, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They are all given new names. Why? Again, we ask the question, why? Why change their names? Because once again, this is another way in which their old identity is being stripped away from them and erased. And they are being given new names. They are being given new identities. There is, now, there is significance to these names. It's, it's not like just saying, okay, I, I don't like the name Bob. I'm going to call you Jim, right? I mean, there's, there's significance to the names back there. I mean, I know that we can all probably say, well, my name means such and such, but... When was the last time that you really thought what your name meant and, and cared about that? But in this day and age, what your name was actually had significance. And so there was significance to these names. Daniel is given the name Belteshazzar. The name Daniel is a name that means Yahweh is judge. Belteshazzar is a name that means Baal's prince or Baal provides. And so you see what's going on here. Your name is no longer associated with your God. Your name is now going to be associated with our gods. It's the same, really the same thing like they were doing with the vessels. They took the vessels 
out of the temple of God, and they put the vessels in their own God's temples. So they're doing the same thing with these kids. And the same thing happens with the others. All, all, they're all given a name that is some derivative of the Babylonian gods. The translations aren't really exact, mostly because Babylonian gods changed so much in name and function um, that it's hard to pin down what they all exactly meant. But these are some pretty close attempts. Hananiah was a name that meant the Lord is gracious. Shadrach, command of Aku, and Aku was the god of the moon. The next one is probably the most blatant. Mishael, who means who is what God is. Meshach means who is what Aku is. Azariah is a name that means the Lord is my helper. Abednego means the servant of Nebo or Nego. Nego was supposedly the son of Baal. And so you see, in every case, the reference to Yahweh God is removed from them. It's stripped away and it's replaced by a reference to their own false gods. And that's what they had to live by now. Whenever they were called, they were now called by the names that the Chaldeans had chosen for them, not by the names that their parents had given them. And so you see, this was a pretty complete program. The identities, their identities as Israelites were being taken away and replaced. Now again, think about it for a minute. Like I mentioned before, think about the situation that these 15-year-old boys are in. Think back to when you were 15, or maybe you know someone who's 15. Maybe you have kids that are that age. Think about them being put in this situation. How would you have responded? How would they respond in this situation under this kind of pressure? How would they react to the methods that the Babylonians are are using on them? You put a 15-year-old kid in this situation, and by and large, it's going to be very effective on them. And even here, it was very effective. If the number that I mentioned earlier was right, and there were 70 of these young men taken, every indication is that this was effective for 66 of them. These kids lost who they were. They lost their identity. They lost their way of life, and they were thrust into this situation where they were being reshaped by this pagan society of Babylon, a nation that did not know God. How easy would it have been for them to just say, you know, let's just make the most of this. Let's just go with it. Let's make the most of this bad situation that we're in. Or maybe it was, this isn't so bad. I could really get used to this way of life. Now forget for a minute about being a 15-year-old kid. How many of us would respond in a similar way? I think we all need to honestly evaluate our response to that question as well. What if this happened to us, no matter how old we are? What would our response be in this situation? I wonder how many of us would have the same response that a 15-year-old boy named Daniel did. And we see that in the next verse. And we'll look at verse 8 and we'll just touch on verse 8 this morning. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. 
And we'll talk about this one a little bit more next week. But this kid makes up his mind that he would not defile himself. He makes up his mind that he isn't going to blindly follow this program. And he goes and he requests permission to bow out of this part of the program. I mean, that's some serious conviction on this kid's part. I used to have a hard enough time getting my kids to go up in a restaurant and ask for a, a, a box for leftovers, right? A, a, a doggy bag or whatever. Or, or to get them to go and talk to a teacher about an assignment. Well, you know this teacher. You've been in their class all year. Yeah, I can't go talk to him. But the conviction of Daniel here is truly remarkable. I want you to realize one thing about Daniel, even at this early age. He was going to refuse to compromise. He took a stand on this point of the program. This was the only point of the program that had issues because God had said that there were certain things that a Jew could eat and that they could not eat. And Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself, pollute himself. Because by doing something that God had said in his word that Daniel should not do, he would have defiled himself. Now, how many of us would dare make that stand today? When faced with situations out in the world, whether, whether it's at work, whether it's with our families, maybe it's out in some places where we're with complete and total strangers, how often do we refuse to do what we know is wrong for us to do? even when it might have complications or even great personal cost to us. I mean, Daniel, look at this kid. What personal cost could it have to him? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they'd kill him. He had no idea. We'll talk about this more in our next lesson, but Daniel and his friends are going to take a great risk in choosing to obey God rather than to follow the crowd. Rather than to do what would be easy, rather than to do what would be the most advantageous for them. They choose not to compromise, but instead obey the word of God, obey what they know in their hearts to be right. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that's the, that's the choice that we all ought to be willing to make every, every day of our lives. To follow after God's will, to obey his word and not compromise on that word in any way no matter the cost. We'll see as we continue on next week, finish up this chapter, that that's exactly what Daniel and his friends do. And that's the type of character that they're going to show in their lives. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much again for this time that we can study your word. We thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the examples of these men, these kids, Lord, in the different stages, different times of their lives. We just thank you for seeing these examples, Lord, of uncompromising lives. And we just pray, Lord, that we would all take a look and examine our own lives, Lord, when we're presented in different situations. Just how would we respond? I thank you, Lord, for um, your clear instruction in your word. I thank you, Lord, for the, the opportunity that we have to be in it and to read it every day. And I pray, Lord, that that would be a regular practice, a regular focus of our lives, Lord, to to be in, in your word and to be understanding uh, just what it is that you would have for us to do each and every day. I thank you, Lord, for um, the gift of your son. I thank you for what that means for us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be the desire of our hearts to be sharing uh, the good news of your gospel uh, with those around us. 
And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us the rest of today. Pray for the rest of the worship that we have here today, Lord, that it would be glorifying and honoring to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.